Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. On May 11th, Fidelity Investments Canada hosted Focus 2023, a day-long event for advisors featuring Fidelity's portfolio managers, subject matter experts, and thought leaders. Sessions ran both on stage in Vancouver to a live audience and from our Toronto studio for a crowd of thousands more online. Dividend-focused portfolio manager Ramona Prasad hit the stage early in the day, joining host Catherine Black to discuss her approach to value investing. For three consecutive years, Ramona has been recognized as one of Morningstar's top 10 rated female portfolio managers. Morningstar considers risk-adjusted returns when looking at investment products and managers. And today, Ramona shares how she looks at risk playing into her process, while focusing on providing a smoother ride for the investor. Ramona and Catherine also discuss North American dividend payers versus European or Asian companies, as well as the market volatility we've seen so far this year, which has been centered around inflation and central bank uncertainty in the financial sector. Ramona also touches on her market outlook and how her funds are currently positioned. She also shares insights on the global strength of Fidelity's research teams. Please note, today you will hear references to a few slides that were displayed to the room. Also, for full video replays of the Focus 2023 event, advisors should reach out to their Fidelity rep, and investors should head to fidelity.ca slash the upside and sign up for the Upside newsletter. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Thank you for being here today. And Gord referenced the article that I wanted to talk about as well. CNBC article, really great, highlighting your impressive track record for your U.S. strategies. So congratulations on that. Um, But for anyone that hasn't had the opportunity to read the article, I believe the link is posted online. But here in the room, please reach out to your sales team. But to give a teaser for our audience today, you referenced value investing is like having a low budget and seeing how much you can buy. So inform our audience here today, you know, where does that love of low expectation investing come from? Where does that stem from? Yeah, so the idea of having a low budget and trying to figure out what you can do with it, um, what we're trying to do, what what I try to do in value investing is what, what is the budget? And for me, the budget is a couple of things. It's risk and it's valuation. So that's how it translates to investing. Like how much valuation do I have to spend? How much risk do I have to spend? Because the idea is if you can essentially minimize risk and minimize valuation, that is extremely good for your success odds in generating outperformance. So that's kind of how I think about budgeting in investing, but where it comes from, um, and it, it actually ties back to being here in BC and being in Vancouver, which is a really vibrant place with so much uh, diversity and, and so much 
people from all different backgrounds. So when I come here, it actually reminds me a lot of having grown up in New York City, even though it looks nothing like New York City. It's so much more beautiful. And that is there's, there's this you know, constant flow of uh, people from all over the world here. Um, and the experience is probably similar to the one here, which is when you um, travel a lot uh, and you arrive to a new place, you typically don't have a lot of resources and you've got to figure out how to survive with um, extremely limited resources. Um, and eventually you have to figure out how to thrive. And so I think the experience of you know, moving around a lot as a kid and then eventually landing in New York City and seeing my parents do that, um, survive and then thrive on very limited resources ties directly back to how I invest. Makes sense. And surviving and thriving is really, I think, where we are currently in the markets. So let's touch on that. Since the beginning of the year, we've witnessed a lot of volatility um, due to things such as inflation, uncertainty from the central banks, um, as well as events in the financial sector. So any general market observations to share with our advisors today? Well, I'm so glad to go after you, Andrew, because you set the stage really well. I don't have to kind of go through all that stuff. Andrew puts it really well. You know, you've got valuation, you have this macro picture. The way that I um, crystallize all of that is essentially, I believe that what has happened in US banking space, regional banking space has potentially pulled forward a slow moving recession in the very least, to Andrew's point about the availability of credit, in the very least because it's accelerated um, contraction in credit. And that tends to be um, a primary factor for, for a significant slowdown. So if we've got this combination of per, perhaps pull forward recession and um, non-obvious valuation and continued questions of whether inflation is sticky or not sticky, you know, falling fast enough where it's going to land, that to me is a trifecta mm -hmm. of risk. And again, if you know, I'm trying to budget risk and valuation. It's, it's not obvious at all. So I am um, probably at the margin much more defensive than offensive. But to Andrew's point, you've got to be really careful and, and watch it closely because defensives are expensive. Um, so when I find really cheap risk, I'm there. Excellent. So we have risk valuations tying in together. I know risk-adjusted returns mm -hmm. is a big focus of yours. But Morningstar really looks at those risk-adjusted returns for the investment product as well as the manager. So speak to our audience um, and dive a bit more into how you're thinking about risk and particularly how that plays into your process. Mm -hmm. So um, typically, we look for excess return. So we're looking for essentially alpha. And that is great. That is my primary uh, that's what I'm primarily hunting as well. But being this person that thinks about what do I have to pay to get what I want? Like I'm always balancing, what do I have to put in to get the you know, outcome that I want? Alpha is not free. So um, there were times in the market when uh, one of my, my best mentors is named Larry Rakers and the old Fidelity people here would know Larry. Everybody's nodding like Larry is this amazing guy. And you know, he pointed out to me, he's also an engineer, super quanty, and he pointed out like in his time growing up as an investor, risk was free. And we got to this point, this transition when risk stopped being quite as free and you have to think about it more. So I'm naturally inclined to think about alpha per unit of risk, which is called information ratio. It's just the way I'm, I'm built because I'm always thinking about what do I have to spend mm -hmm. to get the outcome that I want. Um, so that's, that's sort of 
instinctive, but in a world where risk is not as free, you have to think about alpha per unit of risk. So I'm, a, I'm very much an information ratio investor, which is just alpha per unit of risk. And what I've learned from just being that way instinctively is when you minimize or really try to budget risk, um, the trust from the end investor, from all of you, in the philosophy and the execution of that philosophy and process, the trust is higher. And as a result, um, the confidence that just flows through the whole sort of chain all the way down to the end investor is higher. So in moments when there are big market drawdowns, mm -hmm. because you've got that trust, because of risk budgeting, this is my belief, um, churn is lower. And this is sort of proven over and over again in research. Products with lower volatility that have sort of volatility budgeting experience lower churn. And for me, the reason that's important, um, it's this idea of like a volatility tax, is the end investor experience, it's really important for me to narrow the distance between that experience and the fund experience. And there are lots of fund managers who, who think about risk differently. Uh, and there's a ton of volatility in their, in their products. And so there's a huge distance between what the investor experiences and what the fund experiences. And that's, that's unacceptable to me. So the way to make sure that those two things are aligned is to minimize churn. And the way that you get there is by being very careful about risk. So hence, risk-adjusted returns. Absolutely. And you know, the smoother the ride for the investor, the longer they stay invested. And that's ultimately what we want at the end of the day. Yeah. So that folds into your US and global dividend strategies that you manage um, across the board. So maybe touch on how, does, how do those strategies differentiate from other strategies available? Right, and so um, really good segue because the, uh, I've noticed this is just how I have always been instinctively is you know risk is is uh, return per unit of risk, and I noticed that that is actually fairly differentiated from strategies on average, which are just looking for the return, the excess return. Um, so the way that I think about what we're trying to achieve is threefold. Where most people want excess return, which is my primary target as well. I also want downside protection to manage that risk profile, and I want income. Mm -hmm. um, these are income funds. So the the, the combination of um, alpha downside protection and income is essentially risk-adjusted total return. And the way that I get there is twofold. One, I want valuation. Valuation, as I've mentioned before, is really what increases your alpha odds. Mm -hmm. And I want quality because quality is typically what's going to get me my downside protection with reasonable valuation. And quality will often get you your income. So if you combine, and this is, this is sort of this, uh, this very immigrant mentality, <laughs> it's a very Costco mentality. Costco, I, I think there's Costco out I love here. Costco. Everybody loves Costco. <laughs> it's a very Costco mentality of get the best quality product you can for the best price. So who here does not love Kirkland, the Kirkland brand, right? So when I have a sweatshirt. That's how much I love it. <laughs> I have a Kirkland sweatshirt too. It's so great. That's <laughs> crazy. So, I mean, if you know Costco, right? So what I'm actually, if I were to maybe make a little bit of an analogy, what I'm trying to do is <laughs> deliver a really high quality end output for a great price. And that's how I approach every security in the fund. So I want alpha, downside protection, and income, and I get there with quality and value um, to, to generate good risk-adjusted total return over time. 
Excellent. So next time we're here, you'll see Ramona and I in our Kirkland sweatshirts as our new uniform. <laughs> we have a couple questions available here. Um, first being, how tight is the job market and higher wage pressure going to affect the defensive companies that you invest in? And this is in terms of the dividend payouts and profitability. So we have to think about things relatively um, to the extent that there's this balance, right? If, if, as Andrew had talked about, what can central banks do to make any slowdown sort of mild, um, which implicitly means that the hit to peak employment that we see now, the hit to peak employment would not be as bad. Therefore, um, this question is refers to tight job market and therefore higher wage pressure. That's like a scenario. So I'm going to speak to that scenario. I'm not sure I believe in that scenario. Defensive companies by nature, like sort of definitionally, are defensive because uh, the variability in their business is lower. Um, and so their ability to, so the variability in their revenues and very likely the variability in their costs is lower. So their ability to manage um, variation in things like wages is higher. So it, there are a couple of factors that go into how they do. And when I start out by saying relative, the question becomes how sort of defensives do relative to cyclicals. And it depends on the starting valuation. It depends on where the market, Andrew pointed out, the market is 18 and a half times. This is not an obvious valuation. This is actually, that's a kind way of saying it. <laughs> it's a very challenging valuation. So defensives could maintain their premium if market conditions um, deteriorate much more significantly than what's embedded in 18 and a half times. So I think you always have to think about like relative and you have to think about where starting valuations are. Excellent. Um, pivoting that, we have some questions around regional, I would say, uh, dividend payers. So do you prefer North American dividend payers over European or Asian companies? Uh, I start out by thinking about um, relative valuations again. And I think about relative valuation spreads as well, so dispersion inside of valuation. And what's been true for a very long time, and I loved, Andrew, I loved your chart with real rates um, in this era of not only negative real rates, but significantly negative real rates, valuation sensitivity just went away. And so we've had over a decade of valuation insensitivity entirely because of where those real rates were. So what has happened as a result is America, the U.S., has had incredible growth because it's a really vibrant place for innovation for lots and lots of different reasons, one of which is very low interest rates. Um, so it's had incredible growth, and that's been rewarded in, in a valuation-insensitive market. As a result, with the rest of the world, especially Europe, um, Western Europe, which tends to look a little sclerotic, not having as much growth in a valuation-insensitive market, you've had this enormous valuation spread for a very long time between the U.S. and Europe. Mm -hmm. And, like, if you're a value person, you just keep, like, hoping it will correct, and you have to really think about fundamentals. So there have been many times as a global investor where I'm like, should I buy European banks mm -hmm. versus U.S. banks, right? I can get, like, 0 0.3, 0 0.4 difference in book value valuation. Mm -hmm. And I have to think about the backdrop of, like, Negative real rates, therefore valuation insensitivity, much higher growth in the U.S., and therefore that, that difference won't correct for a sustainable period of time as, as peak as that difference looks between U.S. and European valuation. So this is all a backdrop to say mm -hmm. that that valuation difference persists today. The U.S. tends to behave defensively um, relative to the rest of the world. And so I am fairly selective despite that valuation difference outside of the U.S. today. 
if I can get that 18 and a half times down a bunch, meaning, and that would, that would probably come from like chaos, it would come from a lot of fear, then um, I would be more willing to take risk in more in less defensive areas like outside the US. So I'll give you an example of something really, of a couple of stocks that are as, as selective as, as them being. The UK has been um, cheap for a while, and I really like the UK market. You get a good combination of growth and income. Um, there's a company there called B&M Value Retail. It's a discount retailer like Dollarama here or like Dollar Store, Dollar Tree in the US. And uh, it's got um, a founder-led, um, founder-led business, extremely smart about capital allocation, and mm-hmm. that tends to get my attention. The way that I think about budgeting risk and budgeting valuation is capital allocation. Yeah. These folks are the same. So when I find companies that sort of where there's resonance in, in, in budgeting, you're very we think about budget, budgeting, we yeah. like, you know, we see eye to eye. So because they're so smart about capital allocation and it's sort of def- a defensive kind of business where people trade down when they're feeling economically insecure, um, and the stock has gotten really cheap for all these sort of exogenous reasons, such as the founder who wants to retire and his brother's taking over, and so the market freaked out. You get at times you get this like great valuation for a very high return on invested capital profile that is unlikely to change. So despite what I just said about U.S. versus the rest of the world, I can f- I can still find companies like that, and I've got companies like that in Asia as well. And like Andrew said, he's got his list, mm-hmm. and he waits. And we all have our list and we all get to our list in different ways. I've got my spreadsheet of hundreds of companies. Um, and, the, you know, it sort of like blinks all day long and I just wait. Excellent. <clears throat> I can imagine having that up on your screen all day. Yeah, I don't, I Catches don't look, your attention. I, yeah, no, I don't look at it. I, it's, it's over there and I look that way. <laughs> Excellent. Um, let's maybe touch on, you know, we've talked a lot about valuations, but downside protection is, is equally um, as important and factors into your mandates. So I think we have a slide here, but can you just elaborate a bit more on your approach to downside protection? And do dividends help you achieve this lower capture rate? So yes, I, I believe in getting to my very good risk-adjusted total return primarily through downside protection as opposed to um, shooting the lights out when markets are up a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I'm really trying to do is not just have a great downside experience. Of course, this is relative and this is in a fully invested context. So the way that you know we think about risk in terms of portfolio construction and um, how PMs approach their funds is people typically buy these products to be fully invested. It's an equity product, so you have to consider that. So I'm trying to protect downside. I'm trying to have reasonable upside experience. And what I'm really trying to do is maximize the spread between the up and the down. And what I'm trying to do is have a, have a strong down and have a huge distance between the up and the down because that ratio of up to down, if you can maximize that ratio or difference or whatever, I tend to think of it in a quotient, and you let that compound over time, you get incredibly, an incredibly good compounded result in terms of your risk-adjusted return. And that is what sort mm-hmm. of drives this softer factor of trust, confidence, and lower churn. And therefore, a fund experience and investor experience that are like very aligned as opposed to like this. Absolutely. So that's, that's the philosophy, and this is the quantification of the philosophy. So when buying your mandate, you're getting that trust, you're getting that smoother ride. That is Huge my, components. That is my objective. Perfect. It's a high level of trust. So let's dive into um, some sectors here. The financial sector you've touched on. You said the events of Silicon Valley, they help pull things forward a little bit. Mm-hmm. Based on that event, you know, what are your thoughts around that sector specifically? 
Um, I smile because I can't get away from financials. I know. Uh, <laughs> Everyone wants to talk about it. <laughs> well, no. I mean, I, I, was a, I was the bank's analyst in the U.S. in mm -hmm. 2007. Um, and then I was in Europe in 2010. And now. So I know it really well. And it's an amazing experience in the end to have, to have been a financials person and run a financials fund in like the biggest financial crisis mm -hmm. in modern times. So when I saw this happening, I was like, oh, this is interesting. Uh, and there's a lot of optimism. There's a lot of optimism in the market, 18 and a half times. And let me, let me quantify it in a different way. Valuation spread, so that's valuation dispersion. And what that is, is essentially a measure of fear. It is like 95th percentile on earnings. So there's a lot of fear on earnings across the market, which is good for a value investor. And it would make you want to buy all day long. When I look at valuation dispersion in book value, book value is what financials live and die by if you're a financials analyst in a crisis. It is like 75th percentile. 75th is okay, but it's not 95. And what that's telling me is there is a decent amount of fear in um, company margins. Um, and that's from this, this great question about wage pressure. Um, it's about costs, because as Andrew said, revenues are fine. So there's a good amount of fear about margins, but there's not enough fear about going concern risk. There's not enough fear about what's going to happen to balance sheets in a downturn. What that tells me is the fear is kind of shallow. So, and that entire 75th percentile book value dispersion had been in the 50th. I've been watching this like every day. If there's one thing I watch every day is all my dispersions, yeah. not the flashing Excel spreadsheet. <laughs> book value dispersion had been in the 50s all the way up until Silicon Valley Bank and then Credit Suisse. So that entire jump from mid 50s to 75th is in banks. And so all the fear about balance sheets is in banks. And the issue is when, when the banks can be a really interesting leading indicator to the rest of the market and they are tightening. So you've got tightening credit um, that very often leads to lower demand and you've got higher regulation coming through to the fat part of the, of the banking system in the US, meaning the middle regionals. So this is not a good setup. So for me, I'm not there yet because we need more fear. So more fear needed, needed to really progress. I understood. So the energy sector then, is there enough fear there for you? Good question. Um, so I'm much more constructive on oil and gas. So I'll go to valuation again. In fact, let me back up. I'll go to this really interesting metric of CapEx, capital expenditure to sales. And if you look at energy, oil and gas over a very long period of time, and you simply plot CapEx to sales, how much they're spending to how much they're making, like essentially the efficiency of every dollar spent is what that metric is. It is at like an all-time low, and that is like a beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. So what that means is there's, you know, sort of profligates. It's such a high-spend sector. you got to throw a lot of money into the ground, and you're not sure what you're going to get. The, the um, days of profligate spending are um, sort of behind us for the time being. So what that means is when your capex to sales is at trough, it's like super low, your free cash flow production is about to like whoosh, mm -hmm. right? And this is true for any sector. It's just um, how much are you spending? So if you combine that with valuation, on a free cash flow yield basis in much of oil and gas, and I don't even have to be, I don't even have to go super speculative in the low beta parts of energy, which is typically large cap oil and gas, a lot of stuff that's out here, like Suncor, for instance, mm -hmm. there's pretty good free cash flow yields. Mm -hmm. So that's why I'm there. I've got this really great setup of um, sort of high efficiency in every dollar spent, if you will, with a valuation that doesn't believe it. 
valuation that doesn't when you get like teens or high single digit um, free cash flow yields. That's mm -hmm. that's the market saying, I don't believe that you're done with your profligate spending. And that's a really good setup. So, yes. Well, as a Calgarian, that is a great thing to hear. So not, <laughs> not too bad. I'm sure there's a few watching today. Broadly speaking, let's talk about the positioning of your portfolios. Um, can you touch on that? How are things looking right now? Yeah. Um, so I am defensively positioned. It is hard in the typical defensive. So you get your defense from telcos, staples, utilities, healthcare. And, you know, they're very expensive utilities. I don't generally like because they're not free cash flow machines. They're, um, they're sort of a portfolio construction tool. Uh, staples are expensive. And the, the, the quality of staples, the staples sort of business quality is structurally declining. Um, and I don't, I don't see a, an inflection in that mm -hmm. anytime soon. So I've got to, like, pay a lot for a structurally declining quality business. Um, so I try to be careful. I obviously will use sectors like that for portfolio construction. Telcos is the same thing. I've got some European telcos that are pretty interesting. U.S. telcos are in a tough competitive position. So that's portfolio construction. So that leaves healthcare. Um, and what I like about healthcare is that it's both great for portfolio construction, but I can get some pretty good valuations. So um, Bristol, Sanofi uh, are my sort of value anchors, if you will. The, the valuations are cheap, which means that the market just doesn't believe the pipeline. Mm -hmm. um, the, you know, the stuff that's driving earnings is um, coming to sort of end of life, and the market's very nervous about that. So you've got to have good scientists on your team, which we do, which got us through COVID from an investing perspective really well. Um, so I really trust those analysts to sort of explain why the pipeline is worth a lot more than the value the market's ascribing. So that's Bristol and Sanofi. And then in your sort of like quality compounders are Roche and AstraZeneca. Really good valuations for the pipelines. Um, again, as helped by a great team of scientists at work on our analyst team. And then you've got something like Lilly, which has done really well, which is sort of like you're within healthcare, a growthy company at a tricky valuation. So you have to be careful. So in healthcare, I can actually get a bunch of stocks and stock pick and feel like a real investor and use it for um, portfolio construction as well. So those are the defensive parts. And then in terms of the offensive parts, I can find food retail, which is a good defensive low beta uh, type of space for reasonable valuations. Everyone's afraid of um, cost inflation inside mm -hmm. of food retail, which is more or less transitory. Um, so that's like a stapley thing. And then um, consumer discretionary is really cheap. You can get like low, you know, sort of uh, high single digit um, PE multiples inside of a lot of discretionary. So I just wait for that and then, um, and then buy those. Excellent. So we're looking at healthcare on the defensive side, consumer, consumer discretionary on the more offensive side, coupled in with a few other things. That's excellent. Mm -hmm. We have another question here from the audience. Um, will tight lending impact the growth of companies you invest in? Great question. Yes. So um, availability of credit becoming lower or accelerating lower um, will affect uh, demand um, overall. And, and you know, it'll affect things like credit spread. There's a very tight relationship between credit sp spreads and uh, availability of credit. So that tends to have an effect on demand, which sort of feeds its way through to things like revenue growth, employment, everything. So not just the companies I invest in, but depending on how this is managed, especially if you've still got central banks that are tightening, as, as Andrew pointed, pointed out, tightening into um, weakening uh, 
macro conditions? So yes, is the answer to all companies. And that's why the positioning is at the margin more defensive because um, this is a really good setup for defense when, uh, when growth slows. And you know, Andrew pointed out um, strong balance sheets, basically high quality companies are doing better because there's some anticipation of this. Absolutely. You mentioned team earlier. So let's talk about the research at Fidelity because it's very team-based. Lots of people go into making your work possible. So touch on for our um, advisors here and at home watching what that team structure looks like. Yep. So we've got, um, I don't know, 120, 130 analysts sitting all over the world. And what I love about that, especially having... um, Having worked in London for several years, I was able to really go into all of the regional markets. So go to Tokyo, go to Hong Kong, travel with analysts for um, 10, 15 years ago and really develop strong relationships on the ground that now that I'm in Boston and it's kind of harder to just you know go to these local markets given that geography, I know these folks really well and we are able to exchange ideas even if virtually and certainly through COVID virtually, we were able to exchange ideas in a, in a fairly efficient way. So it is good to have put in that investment 10, 15 years ago of really getting to know the analysts and then um, being able to essentially um, <laughs> get dividends out of, out of those relationships. No pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> Dividends everywhere. Uh, so the research team is core to the process. And the, the challenge with any research analyst anywhere today is what I said earlier, you know, going back to Andrew's chart of extremely negative real rates for a very long time, is valuation, in, we've lived in a valuation insensitive world for a very long time. And so if you're an analyst that grew up in the last 10 years, and this is where I think I can add value to the development of um, our research, is your, if you were valuation insensitive, you would not have gotten it as right as somebody who were very growth sensitive. So you were disincentivized from figuring out how to value companies well and how to invest um, with a value lens. So what I'm trying to do, um, trying to contribute to our research team is to build in more valuation sensitivity for a world where that is very sensitive to interest rates and specifically real rates for a world potentially where real rates have any kind of sustainability and being positive. Mm-hmm. That will be an interesting world from valuation perspective. So we're the work in, uh, in research, um, I think, across the board is to build in more valuation sensitivity. Excellent. You mentioned relationships. I think relationships help you do your job. Relationships are obviously the foundation of what our advisors do every day. Um, let's just touch on you know, the relationship between an equity income fund and a bond income fund. There's a reason for both, but why equity with the current rate environment? It's an enduring question. <laughs> um, so I like dividends from stocks for a number of reasons. Um, one, you know, especially in an inflate, with an inflationary backdrop, if you invest in enough high-quality companies, what you're really investing in is pricing power. You're investing in a company's ability to grow their revenues faster than their costs. And that real profit, um, not just nominal, but real positive profit drops to the bottom line. So you're able to get real bottom line growth, which then translates into dividends that grow in real terms, Mm -hmm. which is different from conventional fixed income investing. So if I can deliver an income stream that is growing, not just an earnings stream, but you're taking cash off of those earnings, an income stream that is growing in real terms, 
that is extremely attractive in an inflationary environment. So that's the primary reason in today's environment for um, getting your income, getting at least a, some allocation of your income from stocks. And then the sort of more enduring reasons, irrespective of the backdrop, are if I've got enough dividends in my total return stream, it's a volatility dampener. Because if you separate total return into price return and dividend return, and you look at the volatility around each one, the volatility around the price return part is extremely high. The volatility around the dividend part is much lower because dividends are, you know, on average, like very predictable. Mm -hmm. So if you put enough, you know, enough dividends into your total return, if it's got those two pieces, it really brings down that volatility on the denominator. And that is a huge input to your risk adjustment, to your risk budgeting. It's a way to budget risk. So the, the tricky part is you can't do it at any, you can't be valuation insensitive. Mm-hmm. And so where a lot of um, certainly passive dividend fund, this is the argument for active dividend investing over passive. Passive, it's just let's throw in the highest yielding securities with maybe some factors um, and see what happens. So you get a ton of volatility around that ultimate return stream. Active dividend investing also can often make this mistake of just dividends at any price. I try to be really price sensitive around how much dividends to put in my total return mm-hmm. because you don't want dividends, um, you don't want them competing with the alpha. It can start to really threaten the alpha if you're using dividends so much that it's killing the valuation of the overall product. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Okay. And that might be a great place to end yes. because overall message your mandates provide a smoother ride for our investors, allowing them to stay invested over the long run, which I think is what everyone wants. And when we're looking for dividends, we should look to Ramona for that. Thank you for being here. Thank, Thank you. you for your time today. Thank you, too. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity Mutual Funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash howtobuy for more information. And while visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.